Hey, I'm Dustin Wynn. This is Freddie Williams. This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor at DCU. Hi, this is Mildred DeFilippis. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vandis. Hi, this is Lieber Mayo. Hi, this is Brian Ezrelli. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Robert Greenberger. This is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Fortaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 65. I'm your host, Dustin, and today we have with us... This is Donovan. And this is Joe. And Josh will be joining us for his review of his comic that he will be covering later in the episode. So this is going to be probably one of the quickest episodes we've had in a very long time, mostly because there's not very much news that has occurred since uh, March 27th through April 9th, so there's not a ton of stuff to cover on top of that. We only have four books to cover. We didn't get any requests for any specific discussions, so we're going to breeze probably right through this one, and we might end up actually coming out underneath the hour marker. We'll see. (laughs) Alright, so let's get right into news. The very first thing we've got is comes straight from WonderCon. WonderCon happened April 1st through the 3rd, and there was a couple of different things that happened as far as the Batman universe. Not as many as you would think, but there was some things that occurred. The first thing we had was on Friday, April 1st, the DC Nation panel was held at WonderCon, and there was a couple of little bits that came out of that. So the first thing was that there is going to be three different one-shots based off of different times of the history of DC Comics, specifically the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. There is going to be a Batman one as well as Wonder Woman, Superman, Justice League, and a number of other characters as well, Flash, Green Lantern, but specifically focusing on the Batman ones we found out are going to be coming out starting in July, and then that's when the 70s will come out, August will be the 80s, and September will be the 90s. As far as who is going to be writing these, so far what we've learned is that Len Wein will be writing the one for the 70s, Mike Barr for the 80s, and Alan Grant for the 90s. Honestly, I don't know who else they could have gotten for the 90s that would have better represented the Batman universe other than Alan Grant. Him or Chuck Dixon. Very true. Chuck Dixon is definitely an option there. I don't know that he would be doing anything having to do with Batman at this point, though. That's true. He did He did leave on a rather unpleasant note. But this sounds awesome. This this sounds really terrific. And I'm really glad that they got the original Arrow's writers to come back and dabble in the stories again. This is one of those news items that I'm actually 100% excited for. I'm very much looking forward to when it comes out You know, and what stories are going to be told. What, what is going to be interesting to me is who they pair with these writers as the artists. I would hope they would get an artist from that time frame, but by the looks of it, it doesn't look like that's going to happen since they've already announced the uh, 70s artist, and that is going to be Tom Mandrake. Don't have a lot to say with that, but I swear if they don't get Norm Brayfogle with Alan Grant, that would be a huge disappointment. I was just about to say, please. <laughs> I wonder. Well, Jim Impero's dead, so I'm wondering who they could get for somebody in the '80s. Uh, Marshall Rogers is dead too. Oh, gosh, I, I do not know. I can't. I can't think of any any major Batman artists in the '80s besides Frank Miller, and they're not going to get him. Yeah, I think the thing is, like, I can I can think of some artists, but they weren't artists that you know worked on Batman in a large amount. 
Right. They had, they had stories here and there, but it wasn't like, you know, for instance, Norm Brayfogel with his run in the 90s, that that spanned over years, not just, you know, one story arc here or there. So, I don't know. Yeah, and I said, like, like I think Jim Aparo would have been the guy in the 80s, but he has passed away. So after him, I I cannot think of anyone else. So that that'll certainly be interesting. It's kind of unfortunate that a lot of the artists aren't around. Mm-hmm. But anyway, moving into some of the other things from the DC Nation panel, they stated that Batman will be interacting with Barry Allen a good deal with inside the Flashpoint series. A question about Bane returning to being a villain was asked, and Eddie Braganza answered that since Bane is planned to be a villain for the upcoming Batman film, it would make sense. Dan DiDio chimed in and said that Bane will be playing a much larger role around the time The Dark Knight Rises is released. So could we be seeing Bane maybe return to the main pages of a Batman comic since he really hasn't been there since really No Man's Land? I don't want to say that I don't want this, but I, w- I always applauded DC for not following the movies as much. I mean, I, I think Josh would, would disagree with War Games, but I think that for the most part, DC is different than Marvel in that when a big movie comes out, they don't pander the comic books to the movie at the time. So I kind of wish they would stick with that with this time. But I, I like Bane as a character, so it might, it might be kind of cool. Yeah, I can't think of the time I'm trying to think of, but it just seemed like um, trying to get the character in just to make more money, especially as he, if he's coming out in a movie and then People are going to be interested in the comics around the time. So, I mean, probably get new readers and stuff, but it, it does seem like it's just a money-making opportunity on DC's part. I think it's, obviously, it's always about the money in the end. But I think one of the important things is that, no offense to Secret Six or, you know, the, the creators working on Secret Six, but I don't think Secret Six is really one of the mainstream books that, you know, people would know about when they hear about comics. If you ask somebody, hey, did you know that there's a comic book called Secret Six in the DC Universe? Someone, you know, some people may say yes, some people may say no. If you, you ask somebody then, the follow-up question would be, so who are the six in the Secret Six? Would they be able to name the six? I, <laughs> I'm, I'm highly doubtful of that. On top of that, I don't even know that they would be able to name Bane as part of the Secret Six just because unless you're reading the series or you're very familiar with everything going on in the DC Universe, I don't think you're really going to be knowing a whole lot about that character. So I think there, the, the idea behind it, yes, it has to do with the money, but I think it also has to do with getting Bane back in the spotlight as far as the Batman Universe. And yes, it's, it coincides with the movie, but I think at the same time, it makes sense. I agree where it's a better idea to keep the villains that are appearing in the movies out of the comics, specifically relating to you know the fact that they're appearing because of the movie. But I think Bane is a character where you know he's not an A-list character that every single person knows. And I also think that it would make a lot of sense for DC Comics to try to rid people's minds of the Bane that appeared in <laughs> Shoemaker's film by making sure that they're putting out a good story with Bane in it around the same time Bane comes out. Honestly, there hasn't really been a... That's a very good point. ...since Nightfall. So, I think it'd be a horrible idea for DC Comics to say, oh, so if you're really interested in Bane, go back and pick up trade paperbacks from almost two decades ago. Well, I, I thought Bane had a pretty good run in um, Gotham Knights, where he was tr- who was trying to find out who his father was. I thought that was a pretty good story, but it's, it's not a very well-known story. Exactly, and it's, it's not well-known, and it's not like a huge story like Nightfall was. 
Yes, he was also involved in No Man's Land, but not to the degree that, you know, his story, he will always be known for the story of he broke Batman. Even when Bane was first announced, everybody was saying, oh, well, maybe maybe Batman's back's going to get broken, because that's what they associate with the character. So it'd be kind of stupid on DC's mm. part to be not promoting Bane in any way. That's a good point. Uh, compared, compared to Rachel Ghoul, who... When you think of Rachel Ghoul, you think of how good a villain he is, not the one thing he's done. Right. Whereas Bane is, is the, totally on the opposite. So. All right. The other bits that came out of the DC Nation panel was a fan asked if Dick Grayson would be returning to his Nightwing persona. The question was ignored promptly by Bob Wayne, who was leading the panel, and then Dan DeDio revealed that he was wearing a Nightwing shirt underneath his button-up. So, oh, that's cute. Who, who knows what's going on? This question was also presented at uh, C2E2, and they kind of did the same thing without obviously him taking his shirt off and showing that there's a Nightwing shirt, but... Um, he did this, they, they kind of did one of these, you know, well, we can't uh, really talk about that next question kind of thing that they they do. And as we get into the end of WonderCon, we'll talk a little bit more about that. Batman Europa was brought up and Bob Wayne explained that it was not ready and will be solicited in the future. Which, again, leaves us with no new information about that series. The new DC Nation television show was mentioned and Dan DiDio said that it would be a one-hour block of animation with many lesser-known characters featured. So it's that really has nothing to do with the comic cast, so we'll talk more about that on the normal cast next month. But that was the DC Nation panel. Not really a whole lot. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of people want Nightwing back, don't they? It sure does sound like that. But... I, I don't know. I don't know what to think about that. I, I think it's one of those things where you know a lot of people are trying to figure out how long this Batman Incorporated thing is going to last. You know what's going to mm-hmm. happen when Batman Incorporated's not really prominent as much as it is now. What's going to happen to Dick Grayson? Uh, I think really the idea behind that is that a lot of people f- you know really enjoy the character of Dick Grayson. They don't want to see him killed off or something stupid like that because DC doesn't want him returning to being Nightwing. So I think that's one of the reasons why some people are asking that question. But in general, it just seems like, you know, they enjoyed what was going on with the character when he was Nightwing. Not that they're not necessarily not enjoying what's going on with him as Batman. I just think that a lot more people maybe were more able to associate with the character when he was Nightwing. You're talking about, like, the creators or the fans? The fans. You're right, because I think that, like... Right now, I legitimately think that like a lot of times they're focused on really modernizing a lot of Silver Age comics. That's why he's Batman, in my opinion, because you know there was a lot of stories in the future where he becomes Batman. I think that a lot of fans, he was Nightwing for so long that that's all what fans see, and it, it kind of doesn't mesh with a lot of what uh, DC writers kind of want in their head right now. But I'm not sure, because I really don't see them killing him off. I mean, even as close as they came to... That would make a lot of people upset, and I'm not sure if DC really wants to make people upset any more than they already have in the past. I, th- I think he'll stay, stay alive. Whether he'll be Nightwing sooner or later is definitely a, a good question. I would like to see him be Nightwing again, but I don't mind him as Batman now. I think everyone's expecting once Grant Morrison leaves for everything just to go back to the way it was. Well, that uh, makes me think of this uh, slight theory I had. I don't know if I brought it up in the comic cast or where I talked about it. But, uh, you know... To your wife. <laughs> that could have happened. Uh, the This Flashpoint series that's that's going on, there's obviously a lot of talk about how, you know, this is a slightly alternate reality. 
It's not necessarily a different universe. It's not a different Earth. It's just something in time has changed, and a lot of different events are much different than they are in the DC universe that we own, we know now. But one of the things that I keep stressing is that a lot of things are going to change significantly after Flashpoint. Now, I don't know how much of that is actually going to affect the Batman universe because we know, we know that Flashpoint's not going to be happening, you know, for years. We know Batman Incorporated is going to be happening for at least the remainder of 2011 at this point because there's there's they really haven't really told a whole lot of information about this story and this story is probably going to play out over a two-year time frame. That's just my opinion. But with this Flashpoint thing possibly changing some different things, it's one of those things where it's like, well, what, what really is going to happen? What's really going to change? Because at this point, I don't know that anything that happens in Flashpoint could really change the Batman universe except for some minor, maybe fix some continuity issues here and there. But at the same time, Grant Morrison is trying to do that himself, all by himself, in whatever he's writing. So, I don't know. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, you say about Batman Inc. lasting for a couple of years, we do get keep getting teases about that Grant Morrison going on to his greatest story and what Batman Inc. is really about and stuff, so... I wonder if that is going to play into then the Flashpoint, and if it's just going to be like a giant retcon event. Yeah, and that's the thing. It really just depends on how everything lines up, because I don't think that Flashpoint is going to have such a large effect on what's going on if what is going to what what the ultimate plan for the Batman, you know, Grant Morrison's final story within the Batman universe unless it matches up, and I at this point it just doesn't seem like it would match up unless Flashpoint's going to be going on for a while, and it's not going to be going on for you know that long. So, I don't know. It, it, it's a really odd situation. I mean, the big thing that some people have talked about, including uh, Scott Snyder, is uh, he mentioned this before. I don't remember if it was an interview that we covered here or if it was at a panel at a comic convention or what, but, you know, one of the things he mentioned was that a lot of the different events that are happening in a lot of the different books, the writers that are on the books are specifically working within specific confines of what's going to happen in the long-term end of this ultimate story. And there's something called the Leviathan that has something to do with it. We don't know what it is. We don't know really what it has to do with. We just know that the stories that we're reading are leading to this Leviathan thing, which is some substantial thing that's going to cause multiple Batmen from across all these different countries to join together. So who knows really what's going to happen. I would imagine that this Flashpoint thing in connection to Batman would be a lot like The Blackest Nights, where... There are stuff that's brought up that affects Batman, but it doesn't affect it doesn't overall affect Flashpoint or really even the Bat the Batman books. It's just sort of like they're, they're sort of going on with the idea of the story, but at the end of the day, it's you know like like every other crossover that crosses over in other books. Yeah, that's probably exactly what's going to happen. All right, so moving on to the other panel at WonderCon, the DC Icons panel was the other panel that DC Comics held, and there was probably even a little less highlights from that one. Um, first thing we've got is Judd Winnick mentioned that his Batman and Robin story will feature the first meeting of Bruce Wayne and Jason Todd since Under the Hood. While Jason Todd is locked up 
in Arkham Asylum, he deals with some villain problems and has to team up with Dick Grayson and Damian Wayne. So we'll see what happens with that. Very cool. Uh, a question was asked about whether Renee Montoya will play a role in the upcoming Batwoman series. Amy Reader answered that Jage Williams will address everything that has occurred in the past with the series, but was not sure if she would play a larger role in the title. Um, Reader also stated that the delay was based on a DC decision for a large promotional push in September. Her art will be seen for the first time in 2012, which essentially means, as we know, Amy Reader's first issue is issue number four, and if that's going to be seen, she actually later clarified at her own uh, Amy Reader spotlight panel at WonderCon that uh, 2012, specifically February of 2012, is when her art will be seen, which is issue number four. So doing the math, we can assume that November of 2011 is actually going to be the first issue of Batwoman, finally. That's if something else doesn't change. I'm just, I'm, I'm disgusted that it's going to be that it's going to be that long, but I, I guess there's nothing we can do about it. I guess it, I mean it says it's a promotional push, but I think also like um, everyone's already said, is to make sure there's a substantial amount of issues to push forward. So when Amy Reed is doing her art, J.H. Williams can do a lot of work because if he's writing and doing his art, which must take a lot of time, they got to get a uh, I think a good back catalogue of issues ready to go out. Yeah, and I would agree with that. We'll talk a little bit more about Batwoman when we come to Batbook delays later in the podcast because there's uh, that and some other things that have occurred and as well as a lot of the you know getting some issues in the bag before they start releasing some stuff discussion. Alright, only a couple other things in news. On April 7th Comic-Con International announced the nominations for the 2011 Eisner Awards. Um, there's a couple of different Batman creators that were nominated, specifically Billy Tucci for his Batman in Trick for the Scarecrow uh, short story in the DC Halloween special 2010, and Dave Stewart was nominated for Best Coloring for his work in Detective Comics. So the winners will be announced this year's San Diego Comic-Con, and we'll obviously be there to report the winners. Hopefully next year we'll be seeing some uh, nominations for some other books within the Batman universe. <laughs> Alright, and our final bit of news is from April 8th. Newsarama posted an interview with Judd Winnick, and he talks about his upcoming Batman Robin story where he brings Jason Todd back. Now, obviously, he's he's done a lot with Jason Todd in the past, and you know I guess he's the person to bring Jason Todd back once again to tell a story. So I will read for Newsarama, and Don will read for Judd Winnick. Judd, we talked last year about the Red Hood when you had the miniseries and the DVD out, and you indicated you had more Red Hood stories you wanted to tell. Is this story in Batman Robin what you were planning even back then? I had a very good idea of what the story was going to be. I didn't know what title at the time, but we talked about Batman and Robin because it's the last title where he showed up. So we thought we'd make it come full circle. And it makes sense in the story I wanted to tell, because I'm picking up the major thread that came from his last appearance. It picks up from Grant Morrison's run, picking right up from his last appearance in Batman and Robin. So the Red Hood is in jail as the story begins. Yeah, he's been locked up, but he won't be locked up for long. Jason is in Arkham Asylum, but he makes a request for transfer, which he gets. I won't give away the discussion he has that gets him transferred, because it's fun. 
But a lot of this is about the Red Hood going to a regular prison. Then there's trouble because he gets broken out. But the reason he's broken out of prison might not be a reason he agrees to. So the story, who's breaking him out and why? And he ends up working in conjunction with Batman Robin? It's basically a team-up between the three of them. Batman, Robin, and the Red Hood will find themselves on the same side. All right, so that is that interview. Not really anything more than what we already knew, but uh, I'm sure by the end of the story arc, Jason Todd will not be working in conjunction with Batman Robin. He's going to repeat himself a lot saying, like, yeah, they, they appeared last time in Batman Robin. That's why they're here again. He said that like three times in a row. But, um, well, I mean, it's interesting because he says that they're going to be working together. But when you see all the covers for the next several issues, they're always at each other's throats. So hopefully there'll be a lot more of that and less reluctant team-ups. Because I, I personally find those stories kind of dull, but we'll see how it goes. I think the covers alone have excited me for this arc because they remind me a lot more of the um, original Grant Morrison ones. And it looks like it's going to fit in more with the same themes of the that the book originally had, so I'm really looking forward to this now. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it too. I am interested in that question that he presented, you know, who is breaking them out and why are they breaking them out? I am interested in that specifically because it could either incorporate somebody from the past or it could incorporate somebody that's been overused in the present time. So we'll see what happens with that. One person that comes to mind, which I don't see happening because I don't see Judd Winnick using this character, would be Tommy Elliott, because Tommy Elliott knows that Jason Todd was Robin at one point, and he's worked with Jason Todd in the past. So because of that, you could see those two teaming up, but I don't see that happening. Mm-mm. I hope not. <laughs> all right, so that, All right, so that is all the news. Not that much news to go over, but that is the news. So let's get right into our comic reviews, and let's start off with Detective Comics number 875. To the Batmobile. Let's go. This was written by Scott Snyder with art by Francesco Francavella. This issue is basically the next chapter of the James Gordon Jr. story. We start off with Harvey Bullock basically having kind of an explanation of things of the past and how Gotham City works and how Gotham City has changed over these years. Then we see a flashback of Gordon. He's following somebody called Roy Blount, and we don't know exactly why, but as the story proceeds, we'll find out exactly why. We then uh, cut back to even earlier in Gordon's career where he is actually um, on a stakeout with Commissioner McKeever and he's kind of trying to figure out, solve this crime that's occurring about uh, somebody called the Peter Pan Killer. While he's at the stakeout, he's talking about how he's going to be leaving for the weekend because he has a vacation planned with his wife Sarah Essen. And he gets a phone call from what an officer says is his wife, but it's actually his ex-wife, Barbara Gordon. And she explains that, you know, they're having some problems with James Gordon Jr. again. And he says, well, what seems to be the problem? She says, well, there's a football player who is bullying him, and somehow he landed in the hospital. There's no proof, but, you know, something's going on, and we don't know what it is. Um, We then cut back to normal today time where again Gordon is following this Blount character around and uh, we then 
kind of see like a montage of James Jr.'s kind of childhood where, you know, we see him as a baby and he's not crying at all. We see him, he's killed a bird and he's only a small child. He dresses up as Joker for Halloween. (laughs) So the whole point is that he has absolutely no feelings. He has very little emotions when it comes to anything and doesn't really realize, you know, what's going on. And that's the idea that they're trying to get across. We then see James Jr., uh, James Gordon, and Sarah Essen, along with Barbara Gordon, on a vacation um, that, you know, they talked about earlier. And we see Barbara Gordon meeting up with her friend, Bess, and they talk about this science kit where they bought it together and they have a key that keeps it locked. One of them keeps the key and one of them keeps the kit. And that way they can only, they can always play with it together instead of, you know, using it at separate times. So that's the idea. So at this point, James sees the science kit and uh, says, you know, is trying to break open the box. And Bess says, why are you doing that? And Babs is curious about it too. And James says to Babs, well, you know, I was trying to open for you because the lock is pretty tricky. And, uh, you know, if Bess ever went away, you'd still be able to use it. Bess says, well, went away? What are you talking about? And he goes, I mean, like, if you moved away, what if you moved away someday? And then Bess says, well, wow, your brother's creepy, and they leave. We then cut back to, again, the present time, where we see Blunt uh, kind of using some ether, and we see Gordon talking about how he's been following this guy since he got out of jail about a week ago, and he's pretty convinced that this was originally the Peter Pan killer. Uh, We then see Bess go into the forest, and next thing you know... Bess is missing and nobody knows where she went. Back at the vacation home, Barbara Gordon tells her father that she's pretty convinced that James Gordon Jr. did something to Bess. We then cut back to the present time where Gordon has followed Blount to his apartment and he's basically told them, you know, we I, I know you were the Peter Pan killer I, because of everything that happened. Blount says, well, I, I knew that you knew, so... That's what happened. We then cut back to the vacation where Gordon comes to James Jr. and says, you know, we need to talk. And James Jr. says, did you find her? And he goes, no. And we find out that uh, he has the science kit. And he goes, uh, how did you open up the science kit? And he goes, I just used a knife. We then see Blount hanging out of a window and Gordon holding Blount saying, you know, I'm going to swing you towards the thing because I can't hold you, and we see that Blount is actually telling Gordon that he knew that Gordon was after him years ago when he was doing the Peter Pan killings to begin with, and he planned on getting Gordon's son. The problem was that it didn't really work, and what ended up happening was he followed James Jr. into the forest, and he had this whole story that he was going to tell him about how he had toys in his car and he had this big story but uh, James Jr. in turn said something to him that creeped the heck out of him and that's where we kind of left off because Batman ends up appearing and grabs Blount so he doesn't fall, ties him up and the end of the story is basically the problem is that uh, Gordon still doesn't know what actually happened. He doesn't know if Blount killed Bess. He doesn't know if if James Jr. killed Bess. And that's where we're left. Alright, so Detective Comics 875. Holy crap, amazing story. That's all Mm -hmm. I have to say. 
I I specifically went through a little bit more detail than you know normal because it's one of those stories where you really can't. It's I can't summarize one half of the story, you know, the present day story, and then summarize the the past story because the problem is that Snyder did an amazing job connecting these two stories and making them flow together to really tell an amazing story overall. I don't think that if you separated these two stories, um, they would be nearly as good as if you had them together like he did it here. This was probably one of the best comics I've read in a very long time, and I honestly cannot wait until the next time we see Gordon inside of Detective Comics talking more about James Jr. This story has, you know, has some real raw emotions flowing through the mind of Gordon. You can really see when you read through his uh, his thoughts that he's thinking as he's trying to deduce exactly what's happened. On top of that, it's just the art is perfect when it needs to be creepy. I mean, you get this real sense of, I don't know, I don't know that I've ever read a comic in my entire life that I have honestly thought to myself, this kid really did kill this best character, but then by the end of the story, you still don't know because you're left in the exact same position that Gordon is. Freaking amazing story, amazing art. I would be doing this this issue disjustice if I did not give it five out of five batterings. <laughs> oh yeah, this is this is where it's at, baby. Detective Comics, Scott Snyder. This is this is where the money's at right here. This is the most psychological. Batman story I've read uh, since I don't know when and I love the fact that it's it's all with James Gordon you know one of the best characters in Batman's history I agree that the art was excellent and more ways just just you know it goes beyond just you know appealing people and you know just just nice style the storytelling in itself was spectacular there's a two-page splash where you see two sides of Gordon in the car on his right side, our left, it's in the backdrop against the present, which is, you know, it's snowing and everything's cold. And you see images of uh, James Gordon Jr. as a little boy growing up. And then on his left side, our right, it's the summer. And there's these two, you know, ice cold and fiery emotional and psychological states of Gordon that are represented in memories of his own son. And it's such a multi-layered and fascinating way to tell a story. I mean, Scott Snyder did an excellent job with the script, don't get me wrong, but Francisco Francovilla, his his artwork just like leaps and bounds some of the best storytelling comic book artwork I've seen in a long time. And there's there's some images of James Gordon here where you just see his face is silhouetted out and there's just his glasses. He looks so creepy. He really looks scary. And he's like a five to ten year old kid in these some of these scenes. And I love the fact that at the end Gordon doesn't know, and we don't know. That's the perfect way to end the story. You don't, not every time you're going to find the answer. And it's just, I, I'm with you. I am dying to see how the story ends up. There was one small continuity issue with um, the, past, the past because they, they say that James Gordon's a lieutenant and he's answering to Commissioner McKeever. It, originally, it was like Gordon was always answering to Commissioner Loeb, but then he became, I think, a captain, and then he was commissioner as Loeb was was found out for um, embezzlement and working with the mob. So that's kind of that's kind of annoying, but it doesn't really impact like just the bre- the the depth and brevity that this story has. So um, I I really like this one, but uh, I'm gonna give it four and a half out of five battle ranks. But still, this is an excellent story. Yeah, I think the um, only thing that 
could have made this story perhaps a little bit better is if it was in a one shot. And that's only because it, I mean, while it obviously flows with the rest of the arc and stuff, I still think when we were um, starting to jump into the Hungry City arc in the last issue, and then we went straight into this, I was a bit lost at first. But um, uh, yeah, very good. Dustin was mentioning continuity things. I'm not sure if I got this right or not, but uh, Barbara calls James her stepbrother, but I thought it would have been a half-brother. Well, it's, it's complicated, because Barbara, Barbara Gordon, Batgirl, Oracle, she's initially James's niece, and there was a, there's an issue that, that hinted maybe she's actually his biological daughter. It's actually kind of complicated. Yeah, it's, that's not really worth bringing up, just because there, the problem is... At this point in time, it's still treated as if Barbara Gordon is James Gordon's daughter, but originally she was his niece, and they've changed it various times. the The comment that was made about you know him being her half brother is kind of an odd comment, though, or step brother, because I don't even know how that would be possible. Well, also he's married to Sarah, like very early. Like like Barbara's still like a, a small kid or a teenager. When he's married to Sarah, and she was already paralyzed when they got married. <laughs> well, that's neither here nor there. Okay, anyway. <laughs> yeah, um, art was brilliant. I, the splash pages especially, and the coloring. I, I really love the coloring of the whole book, and it's really interesting, and something I, you know you don't really get in any of the other books, and the way it plays on the mind is really brilliant. And um, I think the way James was introduced as this really evil character, we didn't know anything about him, and we still don't, but... The way we're now questioning ourselves if he actually is as bad as we all thought he would be, and the like. Um, when we first see him, and he, we believe he lets all the birds out the aviary, and then it turns out Batman finds out it was just some kids, and we're then questioning, oh, maybe it wasn't him. What actually has he done, especially with this Blount killer possibly killing Bess, or was it uh, James Gordon Jr.? So it's really psychological, and it it really works well, and um, it probably was the best book I read this month, so I'll give it four and a half out of five batterings. And over on the website, the Orange Puffin gave five out of five batterings, so that is going to give Detective Comics number 875 five out of five battering. So let's throw it over to Josh for our next book, and that is Gotham City Sirens number 21. How about a magic trick? I'm going to make this pencil disappear. It's, it's gone. Gotham City Sirens. We start off where we left off last issue with Harley Quinn infiltrating Arkham Asylum. And one by one, she's taken out different people with different psychological items having to do with their past, which she knows from her time working at Arkham. Now she's up against Aaron Cash, who's the only thing standing between her and killing the Joker. She takes out um, a rusty nail, and she reveals that it's the nail that the Joker used to prick Aaron Cash's baby, unbeknownst to him, when he was disguised as a clown. And that's the reason why the baby really died, and Aaron Cash thought that it was just because he got really, really sick. So Aaron Cash is like, alright, you can go ahead and kill him. So Harley goes ahead to try and kill the Joker, but he gives her that puppy dog look and says that he's missed her. So they hug instead. Meanwhile, um, Ivy and Selena are fighting, and they decide that they really don't want to be around each other, and then they break up. Is this the end of the Gotham City Sirens? I sure hope so, because these last few issues have been abysmal. This 
arc was very, very, very padded. This little two-part Harley tries to kill a Joker thing. It could have been told in one issue, and you could really sum up the story with Harley Quinn, you know, tricks Aaron Cash into letting her try and kill the Joker, but then she changes her mind when he gives her a look. That sums up the whole issue, but this went on for pages. I liked the art. Um, I was disappointed with... We obviously can't really have Harley kill the Joker for many, many reasons, but still, like, with all that leading up to it, you pretty much knew that, you know, there was going to be a cop-out at the end, which... But it didn't make me any less disappointed when it actually happened after all that. And I guess it's supposed to be classic Harley and her character, but I wasn't really digging it. And the whole Gotham City, you know, Ivy and Selena, oh, I hate you, I hate you more... <sighs> There was really not much emotion behind that, so you couldn't really get into it. Like, there wasn't anything that, like, set it off in particular. I don't know. It's This book hasn't been the same for a while. I'm going to give it one out of five batterings. City Sirens number 21. This was... It had promise. Uh, I guess that's, that's what I can say about this book. I was interested to see how this Harley Quinn thing was going to end. I really liked the twist that she had for Aaron Cash with the the nail that Joker used um, to give his son tetanus that ultimately killed his son. This that that was a really cool twist, and I like hearing the backstory because I'm all about you know building the history of these characters prior to them you know being who they are now. I really enjoy that. What kind of made me not really appreciate this issue as much as I could have was the interaction between Poison Ivy and Selina. Obviously, they were aiming for the fact of, well, we're really trying to get Selina to go do this other thing with, uh, you know, over in Devil's Square, which ends up being this Azrael story that we already were hinted at in Batman earlier this month, but, you know, we'll see the crossover take place in April this month in Batman, Gotham City, Sirens, and Red Robin. They're really trying to push that element and say, well, Selina's going to go do this, so we're going to have her fight with Poison Ivy so that there's no reason for Poison Ivy and Harley Quinn to be around. Okay, that's that's fine, but now you've kind of left it at a position where, now what is Gotham City Sirens going to be after the crossover's over? Is it going to be just Harley Quinn and Ivy? Because honestly, this book, for the most part, has been a Selina book, and it's been really telling Selena's stories, and the other characters have been along for the ride. These two issues, this month and last month, were, you know, Harley Quinn because of the story that was actually taking place. But for the most part, it's been a Selena book. So what's going to happen to Sirens after, after you know, this crossover takes place? On top of that, it seemed like they were trying to push too hard during that entire time. Selena just keeps going, well, what's going on in Devil's Square? Something's going on over there. What's going on over there? I need to go over there. I'm not going to help you with Harley because I need to go find out what's going on. Why does she care so much? She's not a blatant hero who has to go save people whenever she sees something going amok. That, that, that's not her character. So why does she need to go to Devil's Square because she sees something going on over there? It just seemed like they were trying to push the element of, hey, Selena's going to Devil's Square. You can follow this issue with uh, the issue of Batman that came out earlier this month to figure out exactly why she went over there and what's going on over there. That was too strong. The other thing was, I didn't expect Harley Quinn to shoot Joker, but at the same time, 
It just seems like everything that she just went through, playing all these trump cards and everything, was for nothing. Is ultimately sad, and it's really making me think that this character is never going to mature in any way while she has this thing for the Joker. And I thought this was going to be the end of her having a thing for the Joker, but clearly it's not. So uh, this yeah, issue, I'm going to give three out of five battery. Ugh, this is a waste of time. The cover was misleading, first of all. I mean, I guess if, if they want to be uh, symbolic, the the smiles and, and, and with Harley in the cage are like, you know, showing how she can never free herself from the Joker's wrath. Ooh. Well, it's like, did anyone seriously not see her going back to the Joker? I mean, that's that's been Harley Quinn's gag the entire, even in that love. All the way down to, like, in Batman the Animated Series, over and over again, she, you know, ends up hating the Joker, but goes back to him at the last possible second. I mean, she's done this, like, ten times by now. This was just dragged over for months and months and months, basically making everything pointless. All these scenes completely pointless. Um, And it's just, this entire issue was pointless. I agree with Dustin. Why in the blazes does Catwoman care at all about these two characters? Now, granted, I'm not read... Gotham City Sires in its entirety, but I've read a lot of the recent issues, and I, I still don't see why she bothers hanging out with them. I mean, she detests these people, so what's the point? And it's like, unless this is this is like the way for the Joker to be like, be like a really really sinister threat against Gotham in the major storyline coming up right now. This entire issue, this entire the last several months were a complete waste of time. So I'm gonna give this one out of five bad rings. I'm the complete opposite because. Whilst it, I mean, it doesn't really have any substance to it, and it's, you know, it doesn't really lead anywhere, and it's not going to have an important story, but I think it's just been really fun. And um, overall, I think the art's really good. Uh, I really like these splash pages of things like like the nail. I thought that was really interesting. And the um, really sketchy pages of Harley's memories with the Joker. But the Joker was drawn differently to last month. I think there was... They had two artists last month, I think. And um, so I wasn't sure if it was actually the Joker at first. But other than that, yeah, I, I quite like the art. And, um, I mean, there was more filler with these sort of backstories. And it even had flashbacks to the last issue, which was a bit much. And the dialogue between Poison Ivy and Catwoman was starting to annoy me. But um, yeah, even with the ending being quite predictable, I'm quite surprised it's not really the end of the arc. Unless it's just carrying on into this crossover with um, Catwoman. But I'm not sure if we've seen the end of this Harley and Joker thing now, or if that's going to continue then in Gotham City Sirens issue 23. But uh, I'm going to give this four out of five Batrangs, because I just thought it was quite a fun issue. All right. So that is going to give Gotham City Sirens number 21, two and a half out of five Batrangs. Let's move into our next book, Batman Beyond number four. What kept you? Sudden case of shyness. I love reviewing this book because it's really easy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Batman Beyond issue four, the new arc of Legends of the Dark Knight, Max, written by Adam Beechin with new artist Eduardo Pantisca. The issue opens with Maxine Gibson when Nightwing jumps out of the shadows, but it turns out it's just Terry in costume. This is all an attempt to cover for Dick Grayson after it was leaked that he used to be Nightwing. However, Grayson confesses to the press his former alias. Meanwhile, Max has discovered her computer has been hacked, but she manages to track down the hacker before he can decrypt the data. The hacker turns out to be Undercloud, who offers Max a partnership. 
All right, so Batman Beyond number four. This uh, this was an interesting issue. There's a couple very key things I think occurred in this issue that really are important. The first one being we see Maxine Gibson kind of return from, I don't even know what you could call it. It's not really an absence because Batman Beyond in general was absent. But we haven't really seen Max appear in the Batman Beyond series for a while and ever since this new series started, she obviously hasn't appeared either. So she does play a very large role in Terry McGinnis's life, so it's important to see this character. Um, there's a couple things that uh, are also important. They put now into the future continuity Batman Incorporated, um, which is very interesting because, honestly, if this series would have started last year, they wouldn't have been able to do this story because it wouldn't have made any sense, and they would have just had a flaw, you know, roll with the Terry dresses up as Nightwing thing to make it work. Although I do have to say, Terry does make a very believable Nightwing. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about this is that you know Dick Grayson has decided to tell the world, yes, I was, I was Nightwing at one point. I d- did work on these, these teams like the Outsiders and Team Titans, but it was all because uh, I was a part of Batman Incorporated. But what's interesting and a small error that I see is that Batman Incorporated wasn't in existence while there was a Nightwing. So <laughs> how, how exactly was he Nightwing for Batman Incorporated since Batman Incorporated, as we know, because we're in, in normal present time continuity, Batman Incorporated's around and there is no Nightwing anywhere to be seen unless... We're actually being told the future of what's going to happen, and Batman Incorporated sticks around, and Nightwing returns. So, uh, what's uh, that? That's kind of a kind of a either a real big plot hole, or a very good disguised way of telling the future. I don't know, um, but I do find that quite interesting because I read that and I was just thinking to myself the entire time he said, "Well, I was part of Batman Incorporated, and I was on these teams." I'm thinking to myself, "Yeah, but." That happened years before Batman Incorporated, so how could that? E- how is it even possible? But at the same time, uh, another possibility is that there could be another Nightwing, and that other Nightwing could have something to do with Batman Incorporated in the future as well, um, which time will tell. But again, that leads back into it's telling the future. I have no problems with the art, even though it wasn't done by the normal artist on the series, Ryan Benjamin. Very interesting take, not as uh, gritty and grimy as Ryan Benjamin's take on Batman Beyond. I don't know if I like this more or less. It's hard to say because I think some of what is done in Batman Beyond can be the the grittiness that Ryan Benjamin brings to the table. But I think this, because it involved Nightwing, I don't know how I would react to seeing a Nightwing that doesn't really look like Nightwing. Um, so overall, this was a good issue. I don't think it really achieved a whole lot other than these, you know, small little things. Bring Max back into the fold of everything and try to tie up some continuity things. Uh, we still have a lot of continuity holes out there if they're going to keep going with this Damien, or if they're going to keep going with this, um, this is the, the presumable future of Batman in the future. But, uh... They really are going to have to like work some of this stuff out if they're going to drop these little things in here and there. So uh, three out of five veterans. 
Oh yeah, this is another mixed Batman Beyond issue for me. I really, I really did like the art. I thought the art was pretty good. However, I will say that some of the uh, main scenes, like the school scenes, one of the things about Batman Beyond that was so distinctive was the fact that it was very clearly at least 50 years into the future. And in the school scenes, aside from the hologram uh, teacher, everybody's wearing normal clothes. And, and it looks like it was like in either our time or a couple years ago previous. And I kind of wish that the artist, Eduardo... Do, 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 uh, Pansista, Pansiska. I wish the daughter Pansiska would add a little more futuristic flair, just to you know, just just to distinguish it from the other bad books. I I I really would have liked to see it a little more futuristic, and so I thought that was lacking in that respect. But otherwise, I thought the art was actually pretty good. Um, this is a common complaint I have from the, the title. I don't think we're getting a good sense of uh, Terry McGinnis in this book. He's sort of just a cipher for other characters and other characters' motivations and. Uh, situations and i think that he's not really being this is his supposed this is supposed to be his title and it's not really being his title so far last couple of issues it was the justice league and the miniseries it was it was a uh, hush decoration batman and this one is max now it's all fine that we're exploring other characters but we've all done this before we've really explored who terry is and we don't really see too much of terry's uh reactions to this so i think that's a serious problem that the title needs to get under very very quickly um, there was a really cool reference to the animated series because on one page, the guy that, that uh, Terry nabs up, he says he'll be talking about Grayson's story on the Bader and Burnett show. And Hilary Bader and Alan, Alan Burnett were obviously writers and, and some part producers on the original Batman Beyond animated series. So I thought that was a great reference. Uh, lastly, I'll say that it, it was a sort of that Dick Grayson uh, outed himself at the end, but notice that you actually don't see his face. They kind of like obscure it a little bit to where you're not, I'm not sure if it's him or not. So that thing will be interesting. But overall, I'll give this three out of five better ranks. Being Batman's friend, sometimes you have to do Being Batman's friend, sometimes you have to do this. Being Batman's friend can sometimes do this. Batman's friend, <laughs> Batman's friend, Batman's friend, Batman's friend. I was so. Batman's sick. best friend. Batman's best friend. <laughs> I was so sick of hearing that line. That straight off the bat, I'm going to give this 0.5 out of five batterings. And I know, it's <laughs> <laughs> but that angered me so much. Just reading that on every page, and uh, I, I'm going to get picky because this issue has angered me. Nothing happened, and there were so many stupid plot holes in it. Like when Max walks onto the train and goes. Oh no, there's jokers on here. Well, you should have looked around the carriage before you got on. I mean, there's so many things about is this in continuity or is this not in continuity. I've gotten so used to it's sort of not anymore. But then there's things like mentioning to the internet and Batman Inc., which just don't work in there. And there's things like, oh, I can't see Dana anymore. It's like first there was Matt Master, now there's this. He's the one choosing, like, Terry McGuinness is the one choosing to dress up as Nightwing to try and save Dick Grayson for something he never asked. But, like, Max even says, shouldn't you ask Dick about this? He's like, oh, no, I know what he's going to say. It, uh, it, no, no. <laughs> Point five out of five batterings. All right. So that is Batman Beyond number four, and that is going to give the book two out of five batterings. Let's move into our last book, Superman, Batman, Annual number five. Oh, God. It's important to keep our identities a secret. That's why Mr. Friendly never takes off his lead-lined cowl. You noticed the lead. I didn't know your x-ray vision had kicked in. You didn't ask. Superman, Batman, Annual number five. Reign of Doomsday. 
written by James Robinson, illustrated by Miguel Sepulveda. Now, this is a continuing from the Reign of Doomsday arc in the Superman titles, which we're obviously not covering. So I'll try to go through this as coherently and curtly as possible. We're, at the, we're outside the Watchtower in space where Starman and a Blue Lantern are trying to get in because they've been locked out. They've been locked out because Hank Henshaw, a.k.a. the Cyborg Superman, has taken over. And the Watchtower is now assimilated to look like him, and it's all under his control. But he's, he has his metallic hands busy because he's battling Doomsday inside, while Batman, the Dick Grayson Batman, and Supergirl are trying to defend themselves from the security system in the now-transformed Watchtower. And they're also over the, the unconscious body of Boudicca, who was a Green Lantern. So this is the part five of the Reign of Doomsday arc, and basically the issue is a one big battle issue. Batman tries to get inside the, the Watchtower and refix it to where it's no longer under Cyborg Superman's control, while Supergirl herself is trying to deal with some sort of inner, uh, inner fi- like she sort of she doesn't feel ill, but she sort of feels weird with her biochemistry. And all along the time, Cyborg Superman and Doomsday are battling in between the panels. Batman tries to make his way halfway through the watchtower while Kara makes it to the uh, the sick bay. And it says, well, we've, we, uh, sickness has been detected in the person currently present. And they start giving her medical analysis and soon it finds out that she is dying. While this is happening, Hank Henshaw goes right through Doomsday and pretty much pierces him all whole. But then Doomsday somehow turns into a cyborg Doomsday, which... I'm not sure if this is explained earlier in the storyline, but it's certainly a twist for him and us. Meanwhile, Batman has made his way through the Watchtower, and he got through one of Hank Henshaw's more, more recent developments, and has initiated a security device that is on lethal force. So he's attacked by very realistic holograms of several supervillains, including Solomon Grundy, Sinestro, Deathstroke, and Bane. While he's, while he's dealing with that, Supergirl tries to have... Uh, Dr. Midnight analyzes what exactly is wrong with her, and it's a hologram of Dr. Midnight with all of his uh, mind functions, which is pretty futuristic. He, he can't figure it out, so he, he suggests she activates the Dr. Fate protocol. And the Dr. Fate protocol says that she, she's in, a, uh, in her black Supergirl costume, which is essentially the evil version of her, even though she's not really evil. And he says that every time she's activated this, it's been an emotional and psychological outburst of her feelings from being exited from uh, Krypton at the last second. Sort of like survivor's guilt. And all he says he ne- she needs to do, and it's, and it's killing her essentially. So all she needs to do is forgive herself and feel good about herself. And everything will be happy and nice again. Just as Batman is about to get destroyed by Cyborg Superman and Cyborg Doomsday battling right next to him. Kara flies right through the wall at the last second and saves him. And she's tearing Cyborg Doomsday apart because she's extremely powerful, possibly even more powerful than Superman himself. Batman saves her from being blasted by Cyborg Superman, but it appears that Cyborg Doomsday somehow teleports or has a boom tube and takes both Cyborg Superman and Supergirl with him. Starman and the Blue Lantern finally make it through the Watchtower with uh, Cyborg Superman gone. And the issue ends with Cyborg Doomsday grappling with Cy- or Super- Supergirl and Cyborg Superman in space. The story will be continued in Superboy number six. All right, Superman Batman Annual number five. Now, clearly this was not meant for the Batman universe. We covered it nonetheless because Superman Batman is a set of books that we do cover. 
Now, Superman Batman Annual tends to not ever follow what's ever going on in the Superman Batman book. It tends to follow, you know, current events within the DC Universe, be it for Superman or Batman. Now, last year for the Superman Batman Annual, we saw a futuristic Superman working with Batman Beyond. And, you know, that involved both characters set into the future. And that was kind of what was going on because they were trying to, you know, set up Batman Beyond reappearing in the DC Universe and work him into continuity. So, this year, you know, the Reign of Doomsday storyline is going on in the Superman books as well as The Outsiders, which was another book that we, you know, got rid of because it had nothing to do with the Batman Universe anymore. And, you know, again, Superman is taking over another one of the titles. I don't necessarily have a problem with this because I get that they're trying to tell this Reign of Doomsday story. And good for them. The thing is, Superman Batman is not a book that follows continuity at all. So when you have an annual that follows continuity and works its way into a, a, a large story like Reign of Doomsday, and this is a crucial part, it seems a little... It, it makes very little sense to me because this could have been done as a one-shot with just as many pages, cost the same price, and just been called something besides Superman Batman Annual Number 5. It could have been called, you know, Superman Batman Reign of Doomsday. And that and they could have been a one-shot by itself. It didn't have to be what it ended up being, which was this annual. We know that the series is in continuity because we have a thousand stories that change month to month having to do, you know, with very little things. If anything, it deals more with Dick Grayson working with Clark Kent uh, as Batman for the first time more than anything else. So with that, it's very difficult to even review this because it's hard to know what's even going on in these in this book because I don't know what's going on outside of, you know, Superman, Batman in this Reign of Doomsday storyline because that's not something I follow. What I can gather from this is that, you know, we have the Superman-Batman elements was Supergirl as the Superman element and Dick Grayson-Batman as the Batman element. And that was kind of the team-up. Reminded me of the World's Finest miniseries that we had earlier last year, which I thought worked well. I about that, yeah. Like I said, it's really difficult to review something that you don't know the overarching story because, because I don't know exactly what's going on. The Watchtower is almost completely destroyed. At one point, the Watchtower is being controlled by Doomsday. Are these repercussions going to be you know, moved along? How exactly do they make another Watchtower? Obviously, Wayne Industries funds all that, but now that all the books are out there, how are they going to just say, hey, uh, stockholders of Wayne Industries, just so you know, we got to build another $3 billion space station because this guy named Doomsday destroyed it. God. I don't know. There's there's just too many holes, and I don't even know what to say. Uh, the other aspect is, it's very difficult to even figure out what exactly is going on and how Doomsday became the cyborg Doomsday. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I don't know if, if the cyborg Superman is destroyed or what. I don't even know. So, I can only give this one out of five bad ranks, and that's only because the art looks good. That was the best part for me. I thought the art was actually very, very, very good. Some of it actually reminded me a little bit of Tom Grummet from a 90s Robin series. In the fact that, like, a lot of times when there were silhouettes, the silhouettes looked very well rendered. And that was a staple Tom Grummet had. Other times it reminded me a little bit of Barry Kitson, but I thought the art was actually very good. Um, and the story itself, it's actually 
okay. I don't dislike it. It's just that, you know, this is the Batman universe, not the Superman homepage, so we legitimately don't know what's going on. And I don't want to grade this story just based on that because I don't think it's fair to it overall. At the same time, though, this does not need to belong in the Superman-Batman annual because, one, all Batman is doing right here is just gets beat up, really. And Supergirl, a Superman character, is fighting Doomsday and Cyborg Superman, who are Superman villains. I know we say a lot, but this series needs to stop being so Superman-focused and just be more half-and-half. They need to do more stories like when they had uh, Superman lose powers and Batman gain Superman's powers. That was good because it involved both characters integrally. I don't. This the series does not work when it's just Batman being kicked around while Superman does stuff and you know Galifants across the galaxy and Batman plays catch up. It just does not work that way. But for the most part, I kind of enjoyed what I was reading when I understood it, and it, it really is just a fight book, so it wasn't. Too hard to understand, but I did really need to pay attention. So I'll give this a middle-of-the-road 3 out of 5 batarangs. Overall, yeah, I really like the art as well. Although it seemed to change in style a bit, which um, I thought was a bit odd, but overall I thought it was really good. And, uh, yeah, like Donovan said, because it was a fight issue, it wasn't too hard to follow, and I got into it a bit. But, um, yeah, I don't know how Doomsday turned into a cyborg, and that seems quite ridiculous considering Doomsday was the you know person that killed Superman. He seems powerful enough without being able to reform and whatever else he can do and control the watchtower. But um, yeah, for an issue, I, I was able to read it and without knowing what else was going on, I, it wasn't too difficult. So I'm going to give it two out of five batterings. <laughs> All right, so that is going to give Superman Batman Angle number five two out of five batarangs. That's all of our comic reviews, so let's throw it over to Nick with Bat Books for Beginners. And welcome back to Bat Books for Beginners. My name is Nick, and uh, this is a segment of the podcast where I review a particular Batman comic story or trade paperback from the past. I've been working my way through Batman's career so far, and we're currently up to uh, the Tim Drake Robin stories. Uh, today, I'm looking at a book called Batman Shadow Box. This is written by Chuck Dixon whose uh, name seems to be cropping up a lot at the moment, more and more when involving Tim Drake, and who I must say I'm pretty happy to see. And the art's by Tom Lyle, who worked on the first Robin miniseries that I reviewed recently. This story was released in 1991, with issues 467, 468 and 469 of the regular Batman series. And it's sort of a sequel to Tim's miniseries that I reviewed uh, a couple of episodes ago, which involved uh, Lady Shiva and King Cobra and Lynx, with uh, Robin training in Europe. So, after that uh, brief introduction, it's now time to dive into Batman Shadow Box. Batman and Robin take down a gun-smuggling group uh, who are smuggling loads of high-tech weaponry, 
And this gang is called the Ghost Dragons. Uh, as And Batman and Robin begin to search for who is behind this organisation, and rumour starts to break out that the King Snake, who was last seen killed by Lady Shiva, is back in charge. And we begin to learn that a war is brewing between the Ghost Dragons and the Triads in Gotham City, with deadly consequences ahead. Lynx manages to steal back the guns that were taken from them whilst the government are transporting them. And Bruce is not happy that Tim may have to fight armed enemies. He doesn't think he's ready for it. Lynx reports back to King Snake, who we learn is alive. All King Snake wants to know is if the boy, Robin, was with Batman. He's clearly looking for a little revenge. Batman is then called to the morgue by Gordon, who shows him that a dead ghost dragon was found, and he was wearing a Robin costume. Batman remarks that someone spent a life to send him a message. Bruce tells Tim that uh, Tim needs to work harder on his schoolwork, um, and it's clearly an excuse to keep Tim away out of the Batcave and so Batman can go out solo, possibly because he knows things are getting a little bit too dangerous. King Snake knows he may have to face Batman before he can fight the boy, but thinks he should be able to handle it. Gordon is sent another warning, this time a dead Robin bird. We learn that King Snake was delirious when he was nearly killed. He uh, forgot about Lady Shiva and purely blamed Robin for his downfall. Batman says that uh, King Snake's going to have to step over his own corpse to reach Tim. Batman goes after King Snake, but is trapped. He's stunned and um, locked into a dark room, and Batman and King Snake then fight whilst both of them are blind. Batman, of course, having a bit of ingenuity, gets out his night vision goggles and beats King Snake, telling him that it was Lady Shiva, but not Robin, that humiliated him in defeat. And King Snake's quite shocked to hear this. Just as he walks away, Lynx is about to take Batman out with a sniper rifle, but Robin arrives and stops her just in time. But the book ends on a rather sour note, as Batman's very angry that Tim decided to step in and... uh, help Batman out, even though Batman told him not to. Tim says, hey, you would have died if it wasn't for me. But Bruce leaves leaves in anger, with Tim shouting, when are you going to realise I'm not Jason Todd? great to see Batman and the new Robin properly working together. Um, Batman took Robin to a gang. He knew there wouldn't be any guns there. I thought that was interesting. You know, clearly he doesn't think Tim is quite at that level yet. He's still got plenty of, uh, you know, he's got a lot of training to do. And we saw that early on when um, Bruce was saying that Tim's showing all the right signs, a lot of promise. He's got the right attitude. But um, he's still got a lot of experience to gain and a lot to learn. Um, yeah, so uh, I was also enjoying the introduction of these new Robin villains who seem to care more about killing Robin than Batman, which I think is quite interesting. Um, the dead body that was dressed in a Robin suit was uh, quite a brutal warning, and I really liked it. I thought it was very good. So um, characters like Lynx and King Snake, I think, um, are quite interesting, but all they seem to do is hate Robin. Um, I'd like to see them fleshed out a bit more, 
get a bit more about their background. Um, so I like Robin having his own villains, but I would like them to have a bit more complexity about them. Uh, Tim tells Bruce that he needs Robin out there or Batman gets reckless. And we've seen that Batman in the past after Jason Todd died and before Tim Drake came on board. Batman was a bit uh, off the rails, going a bit crazy, a bit intense. And I think Tim is exactly right there. And I think Bruce realized it. So why is this book called Shadow Box? Uh, could someone tell me that? Um, I didn't see any boxes or any shadows or anything like that. Um, did they run out of titles? I don't know, but um, no idea why it's called Shadow Box. I thought the ending was very interesting. Um, it wasn't a happy ending like we're generally used to. Uh, the tension was still there, um, and Jason Todd is still in both of their minds, Bruce and Tim, and will he always be? Is Tim always going to be compared to that, and will Bruce ever really give him a, a good chance after what happened last time? Who knows, but um, I like the fact that uh, Jason Todd is still there, but he's still lingering. I, I like that idea, and Bruce is very protective of Tim at the moment. I thought the art was pretty good. Um, the Batman and Robin character designs are beginning to look a little bit more modern, and... Um, I thought the navy blue style Batman looks superb in parts, and I think Tom Lyle is quite a good artist. Um, not spectacular, but certainly solid, and uh, one that I, I'm quite happy with. And I think Chuck Dixon's done a great job, and seems to be able to write self-contained, engaging, exciting stories um, that also have a larger impact in the grand scheme of things. Um, and, and it really, the chemistry between characters seems to be where Dixon focuses his attention between Tim and Bruce, between Alfred and, and Bruce, between King Snake and Lynx, between King Snake and Robert. It's the tensions and relationships between characters that I think Chuck Dixon really gets spot on. So, after all that, um, more great stuff from Chuck Dixon. I'm really enjoying his work. I think he does a great job with Tim Drake and. Everyone around him, uh, he knows how they should interact with Tim Drake. I think it's really good. So, I'll be giving this story four and a half out of five batterings. So that was Batman Shadow Box. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I certainly did. Next time, I'm going to be looking at Batman Gotham Knights. This was published in 1992, and it's a four-issue series which covers the people of Gotham City. When Batman pursues a criminal into the Robinson Central Railway Terminal, six random civilians whose lives rarely interact with Batman are, pre are present in the crowd. A donut seller, an elderly couple, two business people, and a former convict. We'll get to learn a bit of what it's like to live in Gotham in this story. And I think there's an interesting new approach and uh, an area that hasn't really been explored so far in BBFB. What are the random civilians and citizens thinking of Batman and life in Gotham? So it could be a very interesting story, and I'm very much looking forward to it. So that's been Bat Books for Beginners for this time. Please send me an email at, at uh, nick at thebatmanuniverse.net if you uh, would like to send me some comments or feedback. I'd lo love to hear from you. And um, please get on the forums and give us some, uh, give us some love on there. Uh, so this has been Nick for Bat Books for Beginners, and now I'll send you back to Dustin and the guys. Enjoy the show.
right, so that was Bad Books for Beginners. Make sure you pick up the next book for Bad Books for Beginners. Let's move into Bat Book Delays. What do we've got, Joe? Okay, well, um, for Bat Books Delays, we've got Batman issue 5 was once again delayed by a week, so that's now coming out on the 27th of April. And that also pushed issue, issue 6 back by a week as well, which is now coming out on the 11th of May. And Batman the Dark Knight issue 3 was also pushed back by a whole month to the 25th of May, which then pushed all the subsequent issues back by a month as well. That was it for Batbook delays. Earlier, with Batwoman possibly being delayed till November, and Joe, you know, making a note to mention, you know, well, that's so that they can probably get more issues together at once so that they can release issues simultaneously. You know, we've talked about this a little bit in the past about, you know, at, at C2E2, we had some comments from Dan Dio saying that they were possibly looking for a second artist to work with David Finch for Batman the Dark Knight because of the delays on that book. But, you know, clearly there's a lot of problems with delays. Clearly, because we've got a column about it now that happens once a week whenever there's new you know, new new announcements or new non-announcements about uh, different books being delayed. The delays are a huge issue, and getting these other creators can be a solution, but I think, honestly, the solution really should be what they're... They may not be directly doing with Batwoman, but they're indirectly doing by holding the series back until they have a significant amount of issues ready to go, so that way, you know, there's still a good chunk of time in between the time that the issue comes out and whatever they're working on. So, for instance, if Amy Reader is working on her second issue of her series, or her story arc now, issue number five, and it's not actually going to come out until a year later, that gives these creators plenty of time. Really, I think the only downfall of this is that DC is probably going to have to make these exclusive people have longer contracts, because... If that's what it's going to take, if they're going to get these exclusive... It's been a year since they announced David Finch was an exclusive to DC. And really, he did a bunch of covers for you know Brightest Day, and he's done some variant covers for some other books. But for the most part, this was his big thing that he was doing, and we've gotten two issues so far, and all of the other issues are being significantly delayed. So... Maybe the, the solution is, if you're going to make somebody exclusive, you give them a lot more time to prep whatever they're going to do, and then you release it after they have, you know, if it's going to be 12 issues, they've got, you know, more than 50% of it done, because we're also seeing that same thing with Batman Odyssey. You know, that series was delayed over and over again as well. I don't know, the solicitations, it's not even worth going off of whatever they, you know, whatever the description is, because half the time they have creators wrong. We should start a petition about DC better soliciting things and their delays because it's, it's insane. Yeah, but then half the people would sign the wrong name and it wouldn't get there for an extra month. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, so that that's Bad Book for Delays. Let's go over what we'll be covering next time on the podcast. Uh, we have, obviously, a little bit more issues than we had this time. We will have Batgirl number 20, Batman and Robin number 22, Birds of Prey number 11, Red Robin number 22, Batman number 709, Gotham City Sirens number 22, Superman Batman number 83. So that's what we'll be covering next time on the podcast. So that's everything for this episode. As always, you can go over to the website for 
all your daily comic news as well as all the other news pertaining to the Batman universe, you can email us at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net with any questions, comments, or concerns about this podcast or any of our other podcasts. You can also listen to the Batman Universe podcast where we discuss everything related to the movies, TV, video games, merchandise, and general news related to Batman. You can head over to the forums and become a member. As a reminder, always, if you're joining the forums, make sure you send us an email so we can activate your account. With all the spam accounts that uh, are activated every day, it's hard to sometimes tell the, the real ones from the fake ones. So be sure, if you're going to join the forums, to send us an email so that we can make sure we can get your account activated promptly. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. It's always a great way of following exactly when new things are going up on the site is by checking out Facebook and Twitter. So that's everything for this episode. This is Dustin. This is Donovan. And this is me, Joe. And you've been listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. <laughs> Take care, everybody. Well, mine has lost all spontaneity now, so I'm just going <laughs> to keep silent. next time take care everybody best friend okay you guys talked over each other i'm sorry donovan and donovan action this is that way no <laughs> okay <laughs> well mine's lost all spontaneity now so i'm just gonna keep silent oh, man. okay <laughs> wow all right uh, mm. yeah. Interesting episode. <laughs> At the end, it was, yeah, we started to lose our minds. <laughs>